Fellow Cincinnati guests, may I have your attention? It's my pleasure to introduce to you tonight our speaker, Kent Masterson-Brown. As you've heard, past Vice President of the New York State Society of the Cincinnati. He's a graduate of Center College for his undergrad. Obtained his JD from the Washington Lee School of Law and is a nationally recognized author on historical matters, often on, on KET. And he is going to speak to us tonight on the honorary member of the New York State Society of Cincinnati whose house we were at this evening, Zachary Taylor. Thank you. Well, um, thank you, Bill. Uh, I, I can't tell you what a, an honor it is to be asked to speak to the New York Society of the Cincinnati, particularly on the birthday of George Washington. Um, those are things you take with you forever, and I am very grateful to be asked to do that. Uh, my talk, of course, tonight is about Zachary Taylor. And um, Zachary Taylor, I mean, who these days talks about Zachary Taylor. <laughs> um, who knows anything about Zachary Taylor? The silence means, I suppose, nothing. <laughs> um, you know, Kentuckians, uh, and there are many in this room, Kentuckians um, love to talk about Lincoln as being a native son Yet Lincoln left Kentucky at the age of seven, moved to Indiana, and then of course, as we all know, ultimately to, to Illinois. But he never returned, never came back to Kentucky. Although he always reminded everyone that, in quotes, I too am a Kentucky. There were just so many Kentuckians in Illinois, that was good politics. But uh, he always reminded people of that, but he never came back. And here's Zachary Taylor. Zachary Taylor was born in Virginia. He came to Kentucky when he was eight months old and lived here, at least had his residence here the rest of his life. Now he, of course, was in the army virtually much of his adult uh, adult life, and he was in the field and not at Springfield. Often his family traveled with him to various military posts, but still his home was Springfield, here in Jefferson County and in Kentucky. Both Lincoln and Taylor were presidents of the United States. Both grappled with the question of slavery and its expansion while in office. And both of them died in office. Yet Lincoln is the only one we hear about. Never 
I'm not even going to say seldom. It's just never do we hear about Zachary Taylor. And why? Well, Zachary Taylor was the 12th president of the United States. He was also the last president of the United States to have been born before the ratification of the federal constitution. He was born into a, I would say, a prominent landowning and slave-owning family in Orange County, Virginia, on November 24, 1784. Uh, he was the third of what would eventually be six sons. Uh, one of those sons died in infancy. There were also three daughters. His father was Lieutenant Colonel Richard Taylor, commander of the Second Virginia Continental Line uh, during the Revolution and an original member of the Virginia Society of the Cincinnati. His mother was the former Sarah Dabney Strother of Maryland. The Taylors were related to many of the great families of Virginia, the Pendletons, the Madisons, James Madison, uh, Light Horse Harry Lee, and uh, of course his illustrious son Robert E. Lee. Someone that uh, we have a Washington Lee graduate in this in this audience here, like me. We were talking beforehand. And, uh, I said, you know, people ask me, well, why did you go there? I said, Robert E. Lee. Just be that simple. I'll be blunt and honest. It was Robert E. Lee. And I'll say it anywhere in the world. But, but, but uh, Taylor was a close kin to the Lees. That means he was close kin to almost every significant family in Virginia. After being awarded by Virginia a land grant for his military service, and um, the land grant was for land in Virginia. Kentucky until 1792 was Virginia. And he got land in what is now Kentucky. And he gave up his farm in Orange County and moved his family to Kentucky to claim the land on that grant. Uh, to get there, the Taylors used the Ohio River. Now just imagine this, um, they would have had to have taken a wagon, horses, all the way to present day Pittsburgh, where they would then find someone who could uh, uh, maneuver a flat boat down the Ohio River for them. <laughs> And they would drift literally down the Ohio River all the way to here. A lot of people came into Kentucky, of course, through the Cumberland Gap. Daniel Boone uh, <coughs> cut the trace to get through the Cumberland Gap and into central Kentucky. But we forget how many people in Kentucky came here by way of the Ohio River. And there were many who did so the uh, Taylors were among them. And when they did, when they left 
Orange County, Zach Taylor was only eight months old. Can you imagine what that was like? Well, the Taylors settled on um, a 400-acre tract of land along Beargrass Creek. Now, when you were at the house Springfield, that house um, was built, uh, completed in 1790 by Richard Taylor. Uh, originally, they had a log house there. And that brick house that you saw stands on the site of the log house that the Taylors built, where they first lived. I don't know if you can even get imagine what it would have been like to come all that distance. And then you don't have a house to live in. What they would do initially is build lean-tos so that at least they could try to stay dry while they built a log house. Then while they're in the log house, they build the brick house until finally they get settled. And they're using all the mud and dirt from that farm to, to make the bricks. I mean, it's an inc incredible thing. And this, this happened in families over and over and over again who settled early post-Revolutionary War Kentucky. And the Taylors were among them. Um, Zach Taylor had very little formal education. So did Lincoln. Lincoln went to a Blab school just up the road about three miles from his Knob Creek farm he lived in until he left Kentucky. And it was uh, taught by uh, two teachers, uh, one of whom uh, wound up in trouble with the local authorities. And um, Abraham Lincoln's father had to go as a special bailiff and arrest him. Um, but Lincoln had a spotty, at best, education at a flat school on the road between Bardstown and Nashville, just north of their Knob Creek farm. Zachary Taylor um, didn't fare any better. Probably most of his education came at the knees of his mother writing and reading. He did have a man named Elisha Ayer, a native of Connecticut, who was here, who had an academy of sorts and taught him rudimentary reading and writing. There was also an Irish immigrant named Keen O'Hara, who apparently taught Zachary Taylor he had a, um, uh, a little school, an academy in Middletown, not too far from here. And this Keen O'Hara, interestingly, is the father of the poet Theodore O'Hara, who composed the poem, The Bivouac of the Dead, who we all see in every national cemetery uh, in the United States. In 1808, Zachary Taylor, 24 years old, joined the United States Army. 
and was commissioned a first lieutenant. Apparently, he could write and read well enough to where they felt they could commission him upon him joining the United States Army. Uh, his enlistment papers represent probably the first example of his handwriting we have. He's signing off on joining the United States Army. He was, he was sent to the 7th United States uh, uh, Infantry. And the next year, he was ordered to New Orleans. Now, one thing you'll find with Zachary Taylor, this man is literally all, gets in his military service, is all over the map of the United States. Uh, everything west of Virginia, uh, this guy is either fighting someone or he's uh, uh, man, uh, uh, commanding some, some uh, uh, element of the army in some installation somewhere. And he moves from literally Minnesota, what's now Minnesota to New Orleans, then back to Wisconsin, then to Florida. This guy is literally all over the map in his military service. By 1810, he was commissioned a captain. And then while on extended leave that year, he comes back to Kentucky, to Springfield. And there he meets a young lady named Margaret McCall Smith, a native of Maryland who was visiting her sister, a Mrs. Samuel Chu, who lived here in Louisville. Margaret was the daughter of Walter Smith, a veteran of the Revolutionary War, but not, to my knowledge, a member of the Society of the Cincinnati. Well, he meets her in June of, of, of 1810 and marries her on June 21. <laughs> He's going to get this done before he has to go back to that hellhole where he uh, was supposed to serve. Well, um, that couple would have six children, five daughters, and one son. This is Zachary Taylor and his wife, Margaret. Um, one son, the one son, um, Richard Morgan, also just known in history as Dick Morgan. Now get this, now you speak of, Zach did not have a great deal of formal education. And you wouldn't think that anyone in his family would either. Um, but Dick Morgan attended Harvard College and then graduated from Yale University in 1845. Uh, it shows him something about their um, rigors in that family and what um, uh, Taylor expected. Of his, thank you very much, of his, uh, of his children. Well, um, Dick Taylor ultimately um, became a Confederate Lieutenant General in the Civil War. He has served as a division commander under Stonewall Jackson in the Shenandoah Valley, and then um, ultimately a Department of the Southwest commander uh, uh, at the end of the war. Um, a great soldier and um, uh, had an enormous record. 
There were two daughters born to Zach and Margaret uh, who would die in infancy. Um, they died of what the family called a bilious fever, which apparently affected all the members of the family, but just these two little daughters were the ones who died. Um, another daughter, Sarah, uh, would marry one of Zachary Taylor's subordinate officers um, in the Black Hawk War, and this man also served under Zachary Taylor in the Mexican War. And um, he was none other than Kentucky-born and Kentucky-educated Lieutenant Jefferson Davis of Mississippi. Uh, he was an 1828 graduate of West Point and a member of the Second United States Dragoons. And um, we all know Jefferson Davis would be a United States Senator from Mississippi and then ultimately President of the Confederacy and was sworn in in February 1861. Sarah, his wife, Davis's wife, and and Taylor's son, uh, Taylor's daughter. Sarah met Davis uh, while she and other members of the family, including her mother, were with Zachary Taylor during the Black Hawk War in Illinois. Um, Davis was eight years older than Sarah. And then, folks, let's get this. Sarah died of malaria at the age of 21 in 1835 while visiting her husband's sister in St. Francisville, Louisiana, only three months after her wedding day. Now, we were in Bill's wonderful house today. Taylor's house. I don't know how many of you saw the portrait of Sarah in the um, in the library. I guess it is, uh, Bill. Yeah. But um, that is Sarah Taylor. Uh, interestingly, um, Zachary had objected to that marriage, not because he had any feelings against Jefferson Davis. He admired Jefferson Davis as a soldier. He just didn't want his daughter marrying some army officer who was on duty all the time. <laughs> he said it was just too hard. I mean, he watched his own wife suffer under that. But um, they did, and um, that's that story. Well, let me now tell you a little bit about Zachary Taylor's military career. And we'll start with a little photograph of him here. Um, Uh, let's see if we can get one more. There you are. Here's a good one. This is a, a great photograph. It's a daguerreotype uh, printed on glass. This actually is a photograph taken uh, during the Mexican War. He is a major general in this picture. But it gives you just a spectacular idea of what he really looked like. Um, uh, Zachary Taylor 
one of his earliest assignments was in the War of 1812. And he uh, defended Fort Harrison, uh, which was situated where now Terre Haute, Indiana is situated. Um, he, uh, what he did was he defended that installation in September 1812 against attacks against it by none other than Chief Tecumseh. Now, what's interesting about that defense is that that represents the first victory of United States troops in the War of 1812, period, was Zachary Taylor's resistance of those assaults against Fort Harrison in Indiana. And for his service at Fort Harrison, Taylor was brevetted to the rank of major. They go, what in the world do you mean by brevetted? Well, in the Army, um, they had what were honorary ranks. And they were given for distinguished service. And instead of a medal or something or a service badge, they gave brevets in the event you were particularly noticeable in military service, in battle usually. And um, if you were a captain and you were brevetted, you'd be brevetted to the next rank up, which would be major. And he was brevetted to the rank of major. And by the way, that may be the first time in the history of the United States Army they awarded a brevet rank to anybody, was to Zachary Taylor. That's how good a soldier this man is. Well, Taylor then commanded an expeditionary force that was victorious over Indian and British forces in the upper Mississippi Valley. This is Minnesota. And this is 1814. He's been in Indiana, now he's in, in uh, what's now Minnesota. He commanded Fort Howard, Howard at Green Bay in what is now Wisconsin. Um, uh, then it was known as the Michigan Territory. Uh, seven years later, he led the 7th United States Infantry South all the way to Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Uh, and he re remained there until 1824 when he was called to Washington to serve on a committee in the Department of the Army to improve military organization. They were recognizing this man that early as someone they wanted, as a career man, and they wanted his expertise. I mean, just think already how far and wide this man has commanded troops. He returned to duty along the northern stretches of the Mississippi at Fort Snelling and nearby Fort Crawford in what is now Minnesota Territory. He was commissioned a colonel and in command of the 1st Infantry Regiment. Taylor led that command to victory against Chief Black Hawk in northern Illinois and Iowa in the spring of 1832, a campaign that fundamentally ended Indian resistance to American expansion into the upper Mississippi Valley. And it was in that campaign that his daughter, Sarah, met Lieutenant Jefferson Davis. Taylor was then sent to Florida in 1837, where hostilities had broken out with the Seminole Indians in what was called the Second Seminole War. 
after his victory over the Seminoles at the Battle of Lake Okeechobee, Taylor was promoted to the rank of Brigadier General. He was subsequently named Commander of All-American Troops in Florida. And it was in Florida where he became known among his troops as Old, Rough, and Ready. And that was a nickname he adored himself. He proudly carried it the rest of his life. In May 1841, Taylor was made the commander of the 2nd Department of the Army's Western Division, stationed in Arkansas. He oversaw the department that ran literally from the Mississippi West all the way to the, to the Pacific. And um, everything west of the Mississippi below the 37th parallel. And in anticipation of the annexation of the Republic of Texas, a territory that had established its independence from Mexico. Zachary Taylor was sent to Fort Jessup in Louisiana in April 1844 to be in a position to resist attempts by Mexico to try to reclaim Texas. While there, he was ordered by President James K. Polk to deploy his forces in the disputed territory of Texas. And Taylor led what became known as the Army of Occupation all the way to Corpus Christi, Texas. And when diplomacy with Mexico failed in March 1846, Polk ordered Taylor to advance his army to the Rio Grande. After a company of American soldiers under the command of a Captain Seth B. Thornton was attacked by Mexican forces north of the Rio Grande. Polk informed Congress in May 1846 that the war had broken out between Mexico and the United States. That same month, Taylor commanded American forces at the Battle of Palo Alto and the Battle of Resaca de la Palma. Although outnumbered, Taylor defeated what was called the Mexican Army of the North, commanded by General Mariano Arista, forcing them back across the Rio Grande. And for his service, he was awarded the brevet rank of Major General, uh, and formally commended by Congress in May 1846 for his services at Resaca de la Palma. Well, Taylor now is starting to be hailed throughout the country as a hero, a warrior hero. In June, Taylor was elevated to the full rank of Major General as he is in this photograph. The national press began comparing him to George Washington and Andrew Jackson both of whom became presidents. Taylor denied any interest in running for office. And get this, he wrote, such an idea never entered my head, nor is it likely to enter the head of any sane person. <laughs> That's Zachary, he hated politics, and he hated politicians. Well, he led his army across the Rio Grande in September 1846, 
and engaged the Mexican army at the Battle of Monterey, inflicting heavy casualties upon his enemy. Polk, in the meantime, sent an army commanded by General Winfield Scott by sea to besiege the city of Veracruz, an important Mexican port city and the gateway to Mexico City, while Taylor remained at Monterey. Some of Taylor's troops were actually ordered by Polk to reinforce uh, General Scott. Mexican General Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana intercepted a letter from General Scott regarding Taylor's depleted force. And upon that intelligence, he moved his army north with the intent of attacking Taylor's force before returning to Scott and battling him. Learning of Santa Ana's approach and refusing to withdraw despite the enemy's apparent superior numbers, Taylor established a defensive position near the town of Saltillo, but subsequently withdrew to a defensive position at what was called the Narrows, a few miles south of Buena Vista at the urging of General John Wool, his second in command. Santa Ana's army approached Taylor and approached Taylor's positions and then halted. Santa Ana demanded, demanded Taylor surrender. And as one soldier said, after a bit of profanity, <laughs> Taylor responded. I beg leave to say, he wrote, that I decline acceding to your request. Now, say, folks, that doesn't have the drama in it that Anthony McCullough's response to the Germans at Baston does of saying just nuts. But it got the message over to Santa Ana just the same. Taylor took up his usual position, sitting side saddle on his horse, old whitey, chawing on a plug of tobacco. That's how everybody remembered him in the heat of fighting. Santa Ana attacked Taylor with 20,000 men as it has in what was called the Battle of Buena Vista on February 23, 1847. The initial attack routed two regiments of Indiana and Illinois volunteers. The situation looked grim to General Wool, who was the one who placed those two regiments where they were. And um, Wool then turned to, to Taylor and said, General, we're whipped. And Taylor replied, I think that's for me to determine. <laughs> Santa Ana then attacked again while sending one of his divisions toward Taylor's left flank. But Taylor got two regiments, including Jefferson Davis's Mississippians, along with a battery of United States artillery, in place before the Mexicans struck that flank. The attacks failed. To illustrate how cool an imperturbable Taylor was in the heat of fighting. He was seen on his horse alongside the battery commanded by Braxton Bragg, Captain Braxton Bragg, who became a famous figure in the American Civil War as a Confederate uh, uh, Major General. 
as the fighting intensified. He was now referring to, in the, you'll, you'll hear a quote here, but he's referring to grape shot. Grape, as, as, as Taylor refers to. And grape shot is nothing more than a series of iron plates with, with iron balls. And there are three plates, and they're held together by a long bolt that you tighten. And when they're fired out of the artillery piece, they scatter like a shotgun shell. Now that does some real damage. Uh, so when he, when you hear Bragg talk about, when you hear uh, uh, Taylor talk about great, that's what he's talking about. So in the heat of this fighting, uh, he was heard calmly saying to young Captain Bragg, a little more grape, Captain Bragg, a little more grape. <laughs> On the morning of February 24th, Taylor learned that Santa Ana had given up the field. Taylor had won the greatest victory of his military career. The victory was not without tremendous cost, lots of casualties. Among them was Lieutenant Colonel Henry Clay, Jr., who, um, of course, the third son of the famous Whig senator from Kentucky, Henry Clay. Henry Clay was an opponent of the Mexican War. And um, Clay was badly wounded in the action, and as they were trying to get him off the field, he was hit by Mexican artillery fire and killed. Killed also was Colonel John J. Hardin. That sounds like a Kentucky name for those of you who are Kentuckians, Hardin County. John J. Hardin, Kentucky-born commander of the 1st Illinois Infantry. Hardin was a close friend and rival in Illinois in their Whig party of none other than Abraham Lincoln. They were both, from, their families both came from Hardin County, and they were both lawyers, both rivals in the Whig party, and Abraham Lincoln, of course, was an opponent of the Mexican War, uh, just like Henry Clay was. And you know, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Clay, along with three others who were killed with him at Buena Vista, uh, through the good offices, frankly, of Jefferson Davis, uh, had the re their remains exhumed from the Mexican soil and shipped to Kentucky, where they were buried in the Kentucky State Mound in the Frankfurt Cemetery. And for their burial there, Theodore O'Hara wrote the poem, The Bivouac of the Dead, which some say was read for the first time at the services dedicating those graves. Some say it wasn't read then, but it was written for then. So um, the O'Hara's come back into the picture in uh, Zachary Taylor's career. Well, in spite of the opposition of some people, some, some political people in, in, in America to the war with Mexico, the men and boys in states like Kentucky, uh, Indiana, Illinois, Tennessee, Arkansas, literally over-volunteered for the Mexican War. That's why your alma mater in Knoxville is nicknamed the Volunteers. It's over their service in the Mexican War. Well, with the victory at Buena Vista, and then ultimately Winfield Scott taking Mexico City, 
uh, people all across the nation were ecstatic. Taylor had become a national hero. Um, in honor of his victory at Buena Vista, on July 4, 1847, the New York State Society of the Cincinnati elected Zachary Taylor as an honorary member for the Battle of Buena Vista. Knowing how popular Taylor was, the Whig Party convinced him to lead their ticket in the 1848 presidential election despite his unclear political ideas and his lack of interest in politics. I mean, he didn't want him to do it, really. And the one who finally convinced him to run on the Whig ticket was Senator John J. Crittenden of Kentucky. Um, Crittenden was a influential man and a, 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 a man of great stature in Kentucky. And in fact, when um, Zachary Taylor ran for the presidency, um, Crittenden decided he would run for the governorship of Kentucky and give up his Senate seat. Otherwise, Taylor would have had him in his cabinet. But it was John Crittenden who convinced him to run as a Whig. <coughs> well, at the um, 1848 Whig convention, Taylor won after three ballots. And who did he defeat? He defeated Winfield Scott and believe it or not, Henry Clay, who lost his fourth attempt to be president of the United States. Well, um, along with New York politician uh, Millard Fillmore as his running mate, Taylor won the 1848 general election defeating Democratic Party candidates Lewis Cass and Kentuckian William Orlando Butler. Uh, you've heard of Butler State Park in Kentucky. Named for William Orlando Butler, um, he was another popular general in the Mexican War. Um, they also, he also defeated a third party effort led by former President Martin Van Buren and Charles Francis Adams Sr on the Free Soil Party ticket. Taylor was inaugurated President of the United States on March 4, 1849. No sooner had Taylor entered the White House than he was called upon to enter into the fierce political struggle created by the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo of 1848 between the United States and Mexico that ended the Mexican War. In that treaty, Mexico gave up all of its claims to Texas and ceded to the United States all the territory that would become Arizona, California, New Mexico, Colorado, Nevada, and Utah. That's what we won in the Mexican War. Those lands were referred to as the Mexican Cession. Now, the, the question that faces Taylor now, as states petition for admission to the Union out of that Mexican Cession, would they be free states or would they be slave states? 
According to the Missouri Compromise of 1820 that was brokered by Henry Clay, um, states below the 36 degree 30 minute parallel that formed the southern boundary of the state of Missouri would be admitted as slave states. Those north of that parallel would be admitted as free states. Now nearly all the territory of the Mexican Cession, nearly, not all, but nearly, were south of the 36 degree 30 minute parallel. Um, you can imagine the outrage in northern free states to what might happen if these states all are admitted to the Union as slave states. What that means would be the balance of power in both the Congress, the House, as well as the Senate would become decidedly pro-slavery. Now, this is the most interesting thing, frankly, in Taylor's career, and that is his position on slavery. Now, we've heard today um, Taylor was a slave owner. His father was a slave owner. I mean, he grew up with that. Um, yet, Taylor had reservations about slavery. And um, uh, when California petitioned to enter the Union as a state, uh, a firestorm, firestorm broke out. And why? Because if you take the 36 degree, 30 minute parallel and you run it all the way to the Pacific Coast, it cuts California in half. Now, does it come in as a free state or a slave state? I mean, only the good Lord could conceive of such a thing to throw into the lap of this country in the middle of this debate. And this, again, became a firestorm. In Taylor's report to Congress in December 1849, at the end of his first term, first year in his first term, he advocated for the admission of new states from the Mexican session as each state wanted to be admitted. And he told Congress to abstain from introducing topics of a sectional character in that admission process. What he's saying is all this talk about the Missouri Compromise, throw it out the window. He said, if a state wants to come in as a free state, let it come in as a free state. If it wants to come in as a slave state, let it come in as a slave state. And Congress, get out of the way. Well, unfortunately, Zachary Taylor, a slave owner, who fundamentally opposed the expansion of slavery, which he did, he vocally opposed slavery being expanded. No different than Lincoln. Lincoln advocated the identical thing that Taylor did. Uh, Lincoln never came out and said, I'm opposed to slavery. He argued saying slavery violates the principles of the Declaration of Independence, but he never came out opposed to it because he felt constitutionally we can't. But he did come out opposed to the expansion of it, and so did Zachary Taylor. Um, sadly, though, Taylor would never live to make a difference 
in the great debate that was consuming the nation. After falling ill on July 4, 1850, Zachary Taylor died at 10.35 p.m. on July 9, 1850. He was 65 years old. The photograph you see of him here are, is, was taken days before he became ill. And you can see how worn and frankly not well this man is in that photograph. He died probably from cholera moralis uh, that resulted from the, uh, uh, the, the open sewers in Washington, D.C., expelling material into the drinking water. Uh, no different than the cholera epidemic that struck Lexington, Kentucky in 1833. Uh, and again in the 1840s, it was the town branch that ran through the middle of town was contaminated and people were drinking from it or were drinking uh, waters that had been infected by uh, that stream. And suddenly you have, you know, nearly the core of the population being buried in the Lexington Cemetery. I mean, it was just brutal. But apparently that is what he died from. They never were able to find anything else, any of any uh, poisoning or anything of this sort, even as late as the uh, uh, 1990s where they exhumed his remains, uh, they were not able to find him. He was uh, first buried in the public vault of the Congressional Cemetery in Washington, D.C. from July 13, 1850 to October 25th. 1850, and then his remains were transported to the Taylor Family Cemetery near his home, Springfield, near Louisville. Some of you got to see the cemetery. I'll leave you with one thought about Zach Taylor. Um, one of his, well, his most recent biographer is John S.D. Eisenhower who is Dwight Eisenhower's son, who is now passed away. But uh, John Eisenhower wrote a very fine book for a series on American presidents. And um, in that book, he, um, he said this, that uh, given Zachary Taylor being a Southerner, uh, being a slave owner, but yet being a man who vocally objected to the expansion of slavery, would that have not made a difference as this nation moved ever closer to secession and civil war? Would it have made a difference to Southerners to hear from a Southerner who is president who believes that slavery ought not be expanded, would that not have helped? As it was, they heard similar tones, but it was from Lincoln, who was from Illinois, and um, who had very little left in common with even the people where he was born, although he professed always to the end, I too am a Kentuckian. Well, the answer will never know. Thank you all very much.
Very proud of you. I'm glad that you're a member. I'm glad you're a member. And um, on behalf of New York Society, this is a commemorative bronze challenge coin, and you're getting one of the very first ones. It's still uncirculated, so it's up to you if you want to keep it that way or if you want to go against the table over there where they all have them. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. This evening, um, I'd like one final announcement from our New York member from Charleston, South Carolina, Tom Leland. He's going to tell us about the triennial coming up at the end of April. With that, after Tom's presentation, we're adjourned for the evening. Thank you so much for being here. It's been a wonderful evening. Tom Leland. Thank you so much, Bill. Um, I stand before you with absolutely no authority. I do not speak in any official capacity for this uh, society. Cincinnati and Charleston because I'm going to live in New York But as a member of uh, Cincinnati and a resident of Charleston, I assure you that if you come to Holy City, Charleston, which is so named because nothing in our city can be built any higher than the tallest church steeple in the city, you will, you will find uh, absolutely wonderful hospitality be most graciously welcome. And as of today, I found out on behalf of two of our new members that there are spaces available to come to Charleston for the Triennial. So on behalf of those people who have no idea that I am speaking to you on their behalf, <laughs> I encourage you to come and be part of, of, of a brief period of life in the holy city of Charleston.